Welcome to the Rainbow Bull with Tim Volk from T. Volk and Company Consulting. In this podcast, Tim, a proud member of the LGBTQ community, discusses a range of topics around the five capitals of a flourishing family, human, intellectual, social, spiritual, and financial capital. Tim will use this framework as he and his guest experts delve into the secrets of the wealthy and how we might learn from them. So let's get started on this exciting adventure together. Sometimes it seems like life is all about planning. Your work day, gym time, visits to the vet, what to have for dinner. But have you planned what will happen to your assets when you're gone? That is estate planning, and it may arguably be more important than anything else on your calendar. Tim Volk's guest knows estate planning. Now, Tim, Scott's credentials, they're off the chart, man. How did oh. you cross paths with Scott Squilache? I, I would normally try to make a joke and say I was a parole officer for him when we was much younger. But I, there's no, if you look at his resume, there's no time for that. There was no time for that. Um, I forgot even how we met. I, I remember the first time we met, though, I just thought, oh, my God, he was so cool. And I just wanted to hang with him. Where do we, we met meet? at a conference? We met at a conference. And I think I think Jay Hughes was there and said, you two need to know each other. If I remember correctly. Or maybe one of our other friends, was it was it McDonald? Was it um John? I don't remember. We 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 oh, met it was through, someone who said it was someone who said we needed to know we to meet. Yeah. And then we met and was like we couldn't stop talking. It doesn't happen often in my life where we meet instantly and just feel like we could talk and then we could we talked about a lot of things. It's fun to talk to people that have substance because they are interesting and there's lots to talk about. What I've really enjoyed getting to know Scott, aside from the fact that he is incredibly smart, incredibly talented, um, traveled, um, deeply thoughtful. And uh, I think you can see and hopefully all my listeners will will gather why we've why uh, over the course of the podcast, we've asked him to come uh, speak to us. But it's it's wonderful to have someone who in his own profession and the legal profession to be um, top tier. But it's also just so nice to have someone else that's LGBTQ that can speak to us in specific tasks, specific language to us, and and, and, and also feels and has been there with with us through the trials and tribulations of, of uh, estate planning. So with that, I just wanted to welcome you, Scott. Uh, Scott has his own firm, Squalache and Associates. It's a boutique firm based in Boston's historic Back Bay District. It's a lovely practice. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Tim. And it's, I'm happy to be with you virtually and, and I look forward to seeing you in person one of these days soon. I, uh, how would you describe your practice? It's everything. Oh, you, you know, well, it's funny. I, I, I love to jokingly say we don't discriminate. We work with straight people, too. Um, right. we, we have a big focus on the LGBTQ plus community, um, and have, uh, been around since pre-marriage days, but it's really, you know, what the, the way I describe it is front end, back end. So we help people with doing their planning and keeping it updated. And then we help people administer the plans after a passing. Critical, critical Scott and I've had lots of conversation to uh, a variety of topics. He and I are both subscribed to this belief of a flourishing family and the various capitals of the family. And so I'm going to remind our listeners that when we have our guests on, it's really within the context of the five capitals of a flourishing family, which was a concept led by Jay Hughes, a mutual friend of ours. It is the human, intellectual, social, spiritual, and financial capital. And when we talk about estate planning, Scott, where do you think we fall into these five capitals? I'm not sure I understand the question. What do you mean? Well, I think we talk in terms of, I mean, the financial capital, because we're talking about people's monies and estate, but I also think we're also trying to nurture the intellectual and human capital. And in some cases, the social capital is which the money's for, if they're going to impact it from a, from a philanthropic way and the spiritual capital, which is what keeps our families together. What are some of the value systems that we want to make sure we pass on? And so it's one of those rare areas of wealth management that I think 
actually touches all of the five capitals that Jay refers to in what makes a family flourish. Totally agree. It's unusual because I don't think everybody does it. Your investment advisors don't always do that. Your accountants don't do that. Um, lifestyle people, management, people that manage the art, people that manage the homes. It's just one of those rare pieces. And I think the idea of having a well-versed estate planning attorney as your counsel, you know, the whole Italian thing of a consigliere, it kind of makes sense, right? Because you touch so many I mean, things. I'm I'm pausing because I, I think you're absolutely right kind of intellectually, but it depends on sort of like one hand clapping. It depends on whether people meet you where they are around this mm. stuff. Many yeah. people think of estate planning as hold their nose and go talk to someone about death and taxes and crank out some documents. And if it's that binary, then it doesn't touch on all these other uh, human capital uh, aspects. But if it's done properly, then of course it touches on all these other elements. How did you... Be, I know I just, we could get a couple minute version of this, but rather than me read your bio and tell about your background, how did you become an estate planning attorney? What brought you to create your own practice? How did you evolve to this point? I did the classic graduate from law school, get into the big firm, do the big firm thing. Uh, and it was at the end of the 80s when the AIDS epidemic was at its peak. And when you had that diagnosis, it was a death sentence. And so I had friends right, left and center around me who were dying, and I felt rather helpless and that I wanted to do something to help. So I learned how to do very simple wills and healthcare docs and laws of attorney for clients who were indigent and couldn't afford legal services and, and volunteered my time at a pro bono clinic in Washington, D.C. back in 1987. And I kept that as sort of a hobby practice during the ensuing 20 years when I was getting around the world because I liked helping people with meaningful stuff. And when I got back, to, I lived and worked in Europe for a decade and got back to the States and got tired of living at 35,000 feet half my time. And I just thought, I wonder if I can do this full time. So I quietly went back to law school to take some tax and other estate classes and figured I could figure it out. And so I hung out a shingle about, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago. And haven't looked back, but I, I love what I do because I feel like I'm helping people with meaningful stuff. Oh, I love that story. Uh, so why does everyone need an estate plan? Why should we talk about this? You know, it's funny because in a way, everyone needs one. And I love it when people don't have one because we make the most money on those cases. <laughs> Um, you know, sooner, I, my favorite is when people come in and say to me, I'm not planning on dying. And I have to stop them and say, you know, hopefully it's not for a very long time. But uh, as far as I know, we still have a 100% mortality rate. And sooner or later, you're not going to be here and something needs to happen with whatever you have. The other sort of misconception out there is the word estate. People think of elaborate, uber wealthy people and they don't think of themselves as having an estate and therefore needing an estate plan. But the more modest your assets are, the more important it is to make sure things are lined up so that people can have access to funds to pay bills and that things wind up where you want them to wind up. So, uh, you know, what I tell people is life is sort of like a bell curve. Most people are in the middle of the bell curve at natural life expectancy. And every once in a while, you fall at different points on that plot because we never know when we're going to go. And so you, if you have any assets and you care about making sure they go to the right people, that's why you need to do this work. And those that don't? And that, look, sooner or later, things typically wind up more or less where they're supposed to. So if you never did anything, the law provides that your assets go to your next of kin. So assuming that's who you want to inherit your assets, that's fine. It happens in a more lengthy process, something called intestacy probate, that's court-supervised litigation to retitle assets that, again, takes time and costs money. And and as a lawyer, we love that because um, we get to just sit there and, and 
and the ching to ching, but it's not the best thing for the heirs who are parentheses grieving as you only come faced with these questions when something awful has happened to someone. It, it, so those of us that do do estate planning, we are actually comforting the people that are left. Yeah. You only do it, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on a podcast, but you only do it when you give a shit about something. Yeah. You don't you can give swear. a shit about people, then let the chips fall where they may, and some of it may revert to the state, and that's all good too. But if you care who gets your assets, and, and again, back to this concept of an estate, people don't think of it as big as it actually is. I always jokingly tell people that death is the biggest liquidity event you'll ever have because everything gets liquidated, right? The equity that you have tied up in your home, your retirement plan assets, maybe some life insurance assets. Your estate is actually typically bigger than you think of it because it's not all cash in your checking account you see every day. But when you're gone, the numbers start to add up quickly if you've worked and saved and have a home and have a retirement plan. And so you want to make sure it goes where you want it to go. Well, and you've said to me before, it's not just the estate planning. You're actually doing life planning as part of your estate planning, right? Yeah, that's like exactly right. Because it's not just about directing assets at death, but it's about who gets to make medical decisions for you if you have some tragic accident and can't speak for yourself or cognitive decline and are incapable of making decisions. I think I've mentioned this to you in the past, but studies tell us these days that we are 70% more likely to have a period of cognitive decline before we die than we are to die prematurely because people are living longer, right? Medical technology is better than it's ever been. And so for that difficult period of decline, and if anyone has dealt with aging parents, they know grandparents precisely what I'm talking about. You don't want to have to go to court. You get an order for a guardianship proceeding to be able to get access to the accounts to pay the bills. You want to have the stuff set up so that you can take the power of attorney to the bank and get listed on the account and pay the bills. So it just makes it easier when there's a difficult time already in the family. We had a both I've had both situations. My grandmother, my dad's mom, granny, which I was very close with, she had a long decline, you know, and she kept going in and out of the hospital. And then my dad finally convinced her to stop having them do full workup when she went into the hospital and stopped trying to go to the hospital when she just started to feel bad. Like, you know, this whole back and forth, it was actually worse in her decline. And they kept spending enormous amount of money back and forth in the hospital. And, but she listened and she actually was much more willing to, to follow and kind of uh, let everybody help her. My dad, my mother's dad was not, and we knew that it was getting bad and he refused to give up the car, for example. So my mom and her brother would have the car disabled and he would have the car towed to the dealership. The dealership would call my uncle and my mom and say, we have to put this back. We're going to fix it. You have to charge you to fix it, even though we charge you to, to, to dismantle it. And then they'd go back. And it wasn't until he was driving one day with my sister and 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 he said, you know, it's much easier to see it in this big SUV. She said, see what? He said, the white line. That's how I drive. I put the car on that white line and I just follow it. <laughs> My sister's like, oh, dear God. And so we had to go to court to get his driver's license taken away. It was really yeah. awful. And and it became this battle where he resented everybody in the family because they thought he, everybody was against him. It was yeah. never planned well. And yeah. he didn't go cooperate. It was, it was this comedy routine. <laughs> Except no, it was really sad. And the other thing that's sad is when people think they've done the planning and it really is inadequate. So in this era of, you know, download it from the internet and you're all set, well, yeah. good luck with that. I mean, you know, <laughs> my favorite, and I don't mean to disparage any company, but my favorite is, well, I won't say the name, but it rhymes with room, legal room. Um, you know, they, they have these forms and you have to click these boxes. And I always tell people, you'll never know if it works because we only go to use it after you're gone. And nine times out of 10, when people come into our office with these forms that have been downloaded and filled out, there's a mistake. And the only way you can correct trust after someone's gone is to go to court for modification, which takes time and costs money. And if you've done it right to start with, it's it's a different exercise, parentheses, when you're grieving. So what are the key parts of a good estate plan? Well, you know, there's elements that wind up being the documents, but really it's first about 
finding a good fit with an advisor you trust. Because uh-huh. unless you really open the kimono wide and share all the relevant information, not just about your assets and you know who gets what, but who you care about and what you care about, and including you know ph- philanthropic interests. So you got to really be comfortable having very frank conversations. It's remarkable to me how many families have either latent or patent mental health or substance use disorders somewhere in the family system that they feel ashamed to talk about. Um, and that's all relevant when you're doing this work. So I think the starting point is finding someone with whom you're comfortable being completely honest about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then, of course, you know, that person, if they know what they're doing, they will guide you through a process and figure out what the right set of documents are. And that we can talk about that. And then it's what you do with them, because the biggest mistake people make is, again, hold their nose once and go talk to someone and print out some stuff and think they're done and put it away forever. And of course, over the course of life, your assets change, your family situation changes, your goals and objectives may change, and the documents inevitably become stale. So keeping it updated is a big part of the process too. It's not just about, I mean, we can talk about the difference between a will and a trust and all that stuff, but it's really about the process that's important. I like that idea because life changes, everything keeps changing. And um, I know that in our own will and trust, our own trust, everything we've set up, we have to go back over it because it's just been a long time since we've even looked at them. I mean, things have changed. And it's it's amazing to me the paradigm exists, but here's the paradigm that I think is out there. You have assets, whatever the assets are. And if you're talking about retirement planning, you would never go to a financial advisor at age fill in the blank, you know, 40 something and say, here's what I have and here's what I make and here's what I spend and here's when I want to retire and here's where I want to live and here's what I think I want to spend then. And then come back and see him 25 years later and say, okay, where do I get my check? Right. During the course of those periods, you're checking in about rebalancing and figuring out whether your goals then were the same now. So here's the same set of assets for more or less the same set of people that you think you can look at once and then come collect on it 30 or 40 years down the road. It just doesn't work. Tax laws change. All sort of things change. How do you tell if the client, when they're coming to see you, if it's going to fit with you? Do you guys have that discussion internally or do you guys, I mean, how do you? Oh yeah, we do. It's funny. Increasingly we are because we're so busy that we decided we're going to not sort of just keep raising our rates and instead be more discerning about good fit. And it has to do with whether the clients are prepared for the meetings in terms of sharing their balance sheet and asset and family information. And whether they're open to following advice. I'm not saying we know it all, but you know, if you could download the instructions for giving yourself an appendectomy and order on the internet all the supplies you need, when you needed an appendectomy, would you just go do that? No, of course not. There's a reason you go to a hospital and a licensed, trained, board-certified physician to do it. Yet with this stuff, they think, oh, I can read. I can fill out a form. I can do this myself. Well, if that's your attitude, we're not going to be a good fit. Because there's, there's, you're playing with sharp objects and there's years of learning around when it's gone wrong and what the cases say in different situations about how to make it work for everyone. And again, you can't, it's hard to fix this stuff when you're gone. The family's kind of stuck with what it is. I had a call just today from a woman whose dad had recently passed away um, Mm -hmm. and had left a will saying everything in trust for her two kids, um, and they get it all. They turn 18, which is crazy. The kids are 14 and 16 now. And so she wanted to know where to go to set up the trust. And I said, well, wait a second. Is there a standalone trust document? Oh, no, it just says so in the will. And I said, oh, well, then, where, you know, where did your dad die? It was a different state. Have you opened a probate in that state? Well, no, we don't need a probate because we have the will. You know, it's it's just fascinating to me, the misconceptions out there. The only way a will operates is through probate. You, a will has no legal effect until you open a probate. That's a good is, point. So to, to differentiate that, the will versus the trust, why you recommend we have a living trust. Talk about that. That's a very important thing. So it's, it's, it's a, it's, it just makes it easier on the back end, right? But they both have the same effect of making everything, making sure everything goes where it's supposed to go. It's just that with a, 
properly set up a revocable living trust, you never have to go through probate. You are the trustee of the trust during your lifetime and you are the beneficiary. It's like taking your assets from your right pocket and putting them in your left pocket. They're still yours to do with whenever you want during your lifetime. But if something happens to you in terms of disability, incapacity, or death, you've named successor trustees who need to just take a death certificate with a trustee certificate for the bank or financial institutions to get listed on the account. We don't need to file papers with court or publish notices to creditors or notify next of kin or have waiting periods, all of which you do with probate. We don't have to do any of that. We still have to do some stuff settling the trust, but it's quicker and easier um, with a funded trust. So, and if, uh, if I were to go through probate, which I kind of, I can hear your voice previously in that if we have maybe contentious members of the family, particularly not unusual in the, uh, the LGBTQ community, what we'd have to contend with them in probate or the court has to listen, right? It's not like a, a, a done deal. That's exactly right, Tim. Probate, because it, it has to be sort of one size fits all, it varies slightly from state to state. But generally speaking, whether or not you're named in the will as a beneficiary or not, you have to be notified as an interested party that this will is being submitted and either accept or oppose whoever's being named as executor. And here, if you're okay, and check here, or if you're not, and instantly people can throw sand in the gears. Whereas with a trust, the only people that get notified are the people who are named to do something and receive something. So it just it's easier to administer. I have this cynical view that lawyers for generations have propagated the notion that everyone needs a will because every lawyer loves a probate. And again, I love probates. It's our highest margin work in the office. The courts are backed up and slowed down and inefficient, and it just takes more time. And, you know, you don't have a choice because that's the only way you get access to the assets if that's what was set up. But if you've done a trust and put everything in it during your lifetime, you never have to go through that process. I know you've got some stories with that. Like there's just some nightmare people, like things that people didn't. I mean, I don't want to dwell on the negative, but it is not unusual for us to find out that people have been long term partners when they're not married, not not well-planned, are kicked out of the homes, don't have access to anything, don't get to say anything on the medical, right? I mean, there's the stories of where you think you have control, but you don't have control because we haven't uh, done the documents to support the control. Yeah, or kept them updated. So, you know, one of my favorite stories is when I first places, it's not an LGBT situation. It was a, a lovely... Uh, elderly gentleman who was single and had no kids and he was from a you know modestly wealthy family in massachusetts and he decided uh he wasn't particularly close to his distant cousins who were his only living relatives so he left everything in trust to his lady friend from church not someone with whom he was having a relationship just he sat next to her and sang hymns with right she was just a, a lovely friend in trust for let's call her Stella for these purposes. That wasn't her name, but for her to get the income for her life. And then upon her death, cousins would get principal, what was left over. So, uh, and he named his friend at the bank to be the executor. Now we call it personal representative. So friend at the bank calls me one day and says, you know, Joe Schmo has died and I'm the executor. Can you help us with this? And I said, sure. Do you have a copy of the will? He said, well, I must in my file somewhere. I just got a call from the hospital morgue asking me what they want me to do with the remains. And I didn't even know he was sick. So I said, okay, let, let's figure this out. So she said, call my office and have them send over a copy of the will. So they send over a copy of an unsigned will naming her as the executor. And I called her back and said, okay. She was, by the way, on vacation with her husband on the Caribbean island at the time. Jesus. So she said, can you deal with this? And so I said, sure. Where's the signed will? She said, call the lawyer who did the will. I call the lawyer. He gets all nervous, 
He has messengered over me that day his entire file, which consisted of about six pieces of paper. It had some notes from an intake meeting. It had an older will back from the 70s, naming a now defunct bank as executor and different people to receive different things. And then the new will also unsigned. So I called him back up and I said, what's up with the unsigned will? And he said, oh, that's back when I had a sloppy will practice. You can sue me if you want. But I, I, I used to just give them to him and tell him to go to the bank to have it signed and notarized. So maybe it's in his apartment somewhere. Long story, even longer. We send a paralegal to the apartment. We find the signed will that says everything in trust for Stella for the rest of her lifetime, income only, and then to the, the cousins. And Stella at the time is like 83. So every year the, the, the uh, cousins would call us and say, so is she dead yet? You know, I'm happy. I'm happy to report that Stella lived to 106. Oh my God. I love it. And both cousins died in the interim. <laughs> and so they got nothing, but you know, there are these unintended consequences when people don't sort of set this up right or, or keep it updated. How do we, assure that people get the, the medical decision. So if I'm incapacitated where you talked about, you know, there's a higher likelihood of us being incapacitated. And uh, then in, in that case, we're not able to make medical decisions. So we're, we don't have the cognitive ability to, to do that. Correct. Although that decision is only made by your attending physician. Okay. It's not for anyone other than the physician to invoke, a healthcare proxy. The physician has to determine they can't effectively communicate with you. And I've had physician clients tell me that they'll do the blink once for yes and twice for no. And if they think the patient understands them, they'll stay, still take direction from the patient. But okay. if the physician determines they can't communicate effectively with their patient, then they can invoke the healthcare proxy if one has been done that then authorizes whoever is named to make medical decisions for you. And in every state, those decisions are supposed to be made based on what you believe the patient would have wanted, not what you prefer, or what you think they would have preferred. And can I spell that out in the document? So different states have different rules around this. Some states have a, a, a form where they literally, you know, check here if you want a nutrient feeding tube and check here if you want a respirator and all this. Other states are more vague. Massachusetts, for example, is a state that the doctors lobbied the state house really hard on this issue because they didn't want people to sort of pre-decide things since medical technology changes so frequently. They want people to make decisions in the moment based on what the issue is and what the prognosis is and what the technology available is. And so ours just are much more general. Uh, so different states have different rules around what they allow you to prescribe in terms of treatment. So if I'm incapacitated, and it doesn't necessarily mean I'm on my deathbed, right? It just means I'm incapacitated because you could have that happen, car accident or just an accident in general. You're just right? unconscious for a while, right? Yeah. If you're under surgery, you know, general anesthesia, you're incapacitated temporarily. A, and the surgeon then is the one that invokes this healthcare proxy. Well, who's ever attending you at the time? Yeah, it can be your attending. What do you like to do? Is that something you all recommend? That's obviously a critical part of an estate plan. Oh, yeah. Always. Ideally, a trust. Yep. A living trust, I'm assuming, or yep. a healthcare proxy to tell people what to do with me. Like, you well, know. To, to authorize someone to stand in your shoes to make the decisions they think you would have wanted. And and the only thing that is really critical there is to make sure you always have a backup because it is very common for people to put their spouse or partner in that role. And sometimes the spouse or partner is in the same car or plane and isn't available to make the decision. So you always want a backup too. Well, that's a good point. And are there people that you recommend to be good people for that? Or is it always family or is it non-family or is it how do you, yeah, I guess it's question. something. Yeah, I, I mean, everyone's different, right? I always spend time first learning about what I call the cast of characters and the in laws and outlaws and who's in their orbit. 
and then start discussing who are good selections. But it's a very personal decision. It really is just someone whose judgment you trust around medical decisions. And that's not always the same person as someone whose judgment you trust around financial things. Could be a different person or could be the same person. I see. Um, Sometimes people are better with finances than they are with uh, the medical stuff and vice versa. Sort of the softer issues. Well, they're both can be hard issues because mm-hmm. it could be as simple as whether you're, you know, consenting to this emergency surgery or as intense as whether you want to consent to having the plug pulled uh, on the medical side. And on the uh, financial side for a power of attorney, it could be as simple as authorizing you to access to your checking account to pay bills or as intense as you've had the horrible Christopher Reeves accident and you're never going back to this home. You have to sell it and find you a facility that's, you know, wheelchair accessible and blah, blah, blah. So it's the, you never know, you don't know what you don't know. And fundamentally you have to trust the people's judgment who are being named in these capacities. And the, the, the other thing that's important to remember is whoever's named doesn't actually serve until they accept appointment. Like it's not indentured servitude. Like someone can decline to serve because oh. they just are too stressed out themselves or, have other competing demands on their life, which is another reason why you always want to back. Hey, hey, sorry for the interruption. Look, I know you're listening to the Rainbow Bull podcast, and I'm really happy you're here. But if you have any questions or issues you'd like to have us discuss with the experts, please email them to us at tim.volk at tvolkco.com. We would love to hear from you. Perfect. What else? What other parts of the estate plan should we think about? Well, we're focused on the documents, so we can keep talking about the documents, but yeah. I want to not lose sight of the fact that, you know, you can do all the documents in the world. That yeah, I want to go back to that. Right, understand the them and keep them updated. It doesn't matter, right? It's okay. If we don't keep them current and relative to our lives. Yeah, so in terms of the documents on the healthcare side, it's a healthcare proxy it's typically a living will that's narrowly focused on the question of end of life. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, colloquially pull the plug or not. Um, these days, we often do a HIPAA release. HIPAA is the federal privacy law that prohibits clinicians from speaking to anyone without your permission. I affectionately call that the list of who gets to talk to the nurse's station. It's broader than that. They can speak to all of your clinicians by your care and treatment access to information, but they don't get to make medical decisions. Uh-huh. And so if you're in the hospital and someone wanted to call and find out how the surgery went or what your condition is, they're on the list, they get through. If they're not on the list, they don't get through. So I just can't call and say, unplug them. And they're like, all I have is a cold, Tim. They're very functional. Well, you're mixing up issues there, but oh, okay. yeah, the HIPAA oh, release is just for information. <laughs> I got it. Okay. And and by the way, the unplugged thing is, you know, people joke about it. That is not a decision ever taken lightly anywhere, no. right? It is required under virtually every state law that it be um, conferred upon by both your attending physician, an independent hospital physician, and your designated healthcare agent. Oh, so three people have to agree to this. Typically, yeah. Yeah, wow. Well, I think that is a pretty extensive list. You know, the will, the trust, the healthcare proxy, living will, HIPAA release. Um, I think we, we didn't also... Talk about financial powers of attorney, so... Right, that's what I was going to go next, the power of attorneys, right? Okay. Yeah, so when we do these, we typically separate them out and do one just for tax matters. Because the IRS tells us in order for someone to file a tax return on your behalf, it should include your social. And whenever people go to use a power of attorney, it turns out everyone wants a copy of the power of attorney. The nurse's station, the rehab center, the social worker. And I just don't like the social floating around. So we separate it out. And we have one just for tax matters. that if it happens to be April 15th, we can use to file your returns. And the other one is the general durable that can be used for all the other financial stuff. I love this. I think it's, uh, so we, we, we get the docs. Um, I wanted to kind of go a little to talk about the other elements, particularly 
And I know we're going to have another podcast where we're going to talk about the marriage and whether to wed, which is along your book that you wrote. I thought we should talk a little bit about same-sex couples or or uh, unmarried couples, like any of the concerns that you have in the basic estate planning to make sure that we address. Because, you know, John and I have some friends that are ma- straight with kids that aren't married. <laughs> and I'm like... Yep. they're like, well, we don't think we've got it. You know, we don't think it's going to be that big of a deal because we agree on everything. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Well, where do I begin? I mean, as you said, I did write a book on the subject. I called it weather to wed a legal and tax guide for, I call it gay and lesbian couples, but it applies whether you're gay or straight. It really just has to do with the pros and cons of marriage from a legal and tax perspective. Um, Look, but from a basic estate plan. Yeah, go ahead. Marriage matters, right? I mean, it, whether irrespective of what you think about it from a societal standpoint or, you know, institutional standpoint, uh, from a legal standpoint, it matters. It's a bright line that either you are or you're not. So, you know, I have an example of a couple who uh, were together for a meaningful period of time. It was back when marriage was lawful only on the state level here in Massachusetts, but not yet recognized federally. And they decided that the state marriage was a form of marriage light since federal wasn't recognized. So they were going to wait until the federal recognition came through. These guys were in their 40s. One of them has one night what he thinks is heartburn and goes to a regional ER place and is told, take some antacid and call us in the morning. You can see where the story is going. The next day he goes to work as um, what's called the Widowmaker Dissected Aorta guys of a, a ruptured aorta uh, instantly at work. The surviving partner, unmarried partner, with whom he had been living for 14 years and owned a home together and paid bills together and owned cars together and were as together as get together gets, said, you know, the decedent's mom, whom he was close with, wanted him to have everything. Great, except she's going to inherit everything because he didn't have a will or trust, because she's his next of kin. And she can turn around and give it to you, but there are gift tax issues. Okay, let's talk. We talked about those. Then he said, by the way, I want to consider bringing a claim against the hospital for not having followed up on some tests they could have done. I said, great, except you can't. You're a legal stranger. You don't have standing to even request the medical records. She can, but you're a legal stranger. Oh, and by the way, he died at work. So there's a worker's comp claim when you die at work that is available to be paid out to spouse and kids, but not a legal stranger. And it just goes on and on. I mean, some of these things that are available by statute are really only when something horrible has happened, and then it's too late. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't become married after someone has passed away. You know, he doesn't get his Social Security benefits. I mean, there's just it just goes on and on. Well, and we're going to talk more about that on our next podcast. We talk sort of about advanced state planning, but I just think that the key here that you're, the message is marriage matters. Yeah. And look, when I counsel people on this issue, I always say, look, I'm going to leave at the door all the other aspects of this question. Like, I don't know, love and commitment. And I'm just going to talk to you about the legal financial and tax pros and cons and then you can give whatever weighted importance to this that you want. But whether you're straight or gay, if you're unmarried and sharing a life together, there are all sorts of protections that marriage would otherwise afford you. And if you don't do those, then it's even more important to do these kind of documents so that you have some level of protection, both to make medical decisions in the event of an emergency, to access funds in the event of an emergency, to pay bills, and then to make sure you're not kicked out of your house, right? If the awful thing happens. It's enough of a disruption as it is. So so with your gay clients, with the with and then let's go back. I, I think you and I should we've talked about this clarify when we say gay, we mean there's a broad vocabulary here that we can address, and that is we're talking about LGBTQ plus um AI LMNOP. Yeah, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I, I'm stuck in the 80s and I say gay. And for all the listeners out there, I need to include everyone who wants to self identify as being in our community broadly defined. So, yeah, 
I will not, not without without disrespecting anybody. It's just we're broadly right. defining that. Right. And is there stuff that you say to our LGBTQ or our gay brethren that's that would be different than than our heterosexual counterparts or so it's the most common thing that comes up with same-sex couples that do not have kids is what I call the boomerang thing. It is almost always the case that couples want to make sure they provide for each other and that mm -hmm. each other gets to keep living in the house and have ample assets to continue a lifestyle they had as a couple. But after they are both gone, um, you know, I have my nieces and nephews and he has his brother and sister and I want my piece to go to my people and he wants his piece to go to his people or charities or whatever. So you can have things boomerang back to a different set of beneficiaries. Most estate planning is always thought and done with what's called the lung chart, where you have these boxes and it, you know, first goes to the spouse, then the other, and then to the kids and grandkids. And when you have the same universe of ultimate beneficiaries, kids and grandkids, it all works fine. But if you have a different set of beneficiaries, there's a way to kind of cascade it so that spouse or partner can use it, maybe use it all up. But if spouse or partner doesn't use it all up, my stuff comes back to my people and his stuff goes to his people. And it, and it could be the same for our straight brethren without kids. I mean, couples that we know that don't have children as well. They, 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 they may want to, particularly if it's a subsequent second or third marriage where there's other families beyond that, that relationship. Right. I mean, that's, part of the challenge yeah that's precisely right and you could extend it to philanthropic interest too i mean it's not mm. uncommon for couples as close as they may be to have different interests and you know i have my set of charities and he has his and we want to have some different lists and that's all uh doable but it's only doable through a trust you can't do it through a will because with a will everything goes where it goes full stop with a trust you can essentially park it for the benefit of spouse or partner mm -hmm. with certain access and controls and then whatever doesn't get used up by them continues to cascade down my set of beneficiaries and his goes to his and as life goes on you can continue to adjust the living trust as long as you're alive so if people pass or go or whatever in your life you can make those adjustments as you need that's right so what happens after we die is there anything we should be aware of uh, I'm not entirely sure yet, but oh no! I don't, <laughs> well, for I some of us, I don't my, know. My mother asked my dad passed away this summer, <laughs> and my mother asked me just the other day if I believed in purgatory, and I was like, "Gee, haven't thought about that one for a while." Um, so, in terms of assets, look, it's all about title. People get very confused about title. Oftentimes, as people are aging, they'll put either the adult child or a friend's name on their account so that they can help. Well, great, except when you're dead, that person as the surviving account holder owns that money. It's theirs. It's not in your estate. It's not going through your will. I'll go back to this couple that called today. You know, they the dad had put everything in, in the brother and his name so that the brother could help pay bills. And so now... They want to set up this trust for their kids, except the money all belongs to the brother. It doesn't. So you got you got to really pay attention to title mm -hmm. and how you title things govern how things go at death, which is why it's important to title things in the name of a trust. And then the trust becomes a big funnel, and everything kind of flows according to those wishes. So I mean, yeah, I mean. There's administrative stuff. I'm not sure what right. your question is. That's what I was. I was going to say, post-death, what know, are the things that process yeah, that we should yeah. be aware of? Because I don't think most I mean, people it, understand there's a whole litany of things that have to happen. It's a, it's, yeah, I mean, you get copies of death certificates. You bring them to banks and financial institutions, and you mail them to places that are holding claims like retirement plans and life insurance companies. There's, and then, you know, there may be tax filings that are due that are different from the ones that we're all used to. I mean, everyone knows what we're supposed to do on April 15th or October 15th every year in terms of income tax filings, mm -hmm. but there's an entirely different tax system that we rarely pay attention to because we don't often have a need to, 
It's called the transfer tax system, where if you're giving away chunky money during lifetime, it could be gift tax or gift tax return with other tax due. And at death, it's an estate tax or estate tax return. And different states deal with this differently, and the federal government has an omnibus rule for the federal level. So that's a, I always say it's a nice problem to have. It's a funny number. It's currently 10 million per person index for inflation. So this year it happens to be 12.92 million. You can pass state tax free federally. And if you're above that, there's a 40% haircut. And on the state level, it's either nothing. If you happen to live in one of the joyous states like Florida or Texas or Arizona or New Hampshire, there are a bunch that don't have state estate tax, California. But there are some that do, like Massachusetts and New York, where Massachusetts just doubled their exemption from a million to two million. But anything above that takes roughly a 15% haircut. It's a funny calculation. So anyway, there's stuff to do, right? There's income tax filings too. You have to, the year, the part of the year the person was alive, there's a partial year return. It gets filed the following year. Mm-hmm. And then the estate who's earned dividends and interest or income from the date of death has to file an estate income tax return. So there's just, there's stuff to do. Right. Who normally does that? You know, it depends. Different people um, use, obviously, advisors like attorneys and accountants. And when the attorneys do it, frankly, mm-hmm. most of it's done by paralegals because it's very administrative. Some people are very capable and ambitious and want to take it on themselves and, and, uh, or some combination. Yeah. So, and this is, I know it sounds sort of boring for some of us listening, I'm sure, but then at the same time, it's stuff that is so important because, you know, I think there's a saying that I've heard you say over and over again is, you know, we don't know, we don't know, we expect the unexpected. It's like, (laughs) <laughs> and it, yeah, it, and it, it matters, right? Because, like, just take the standard straight married couple with kids and grandkids. That everything is in joint names. So, okay, I'm going to do the most classic example: husband dies first. Everything's, you know, we just go to the bank with death certificate, so everything goes in mom's name. But we didn't do the title to the property correctly. So after mom's gone, we have clear title to sell the property. Because, oh, by the way. There were some things that were supposed to be filed at dad's death, like a release of lien that no estate tax was due or um, a release of lien for Medicare, Medicaid. There's just different things to do, mm-hmm. even if it's all obviously going to where everyone thinks it's going. And you usually don't find out when they haven't done anything until years later, and then it's just harder and more expensive, which we love because ka-ching, ka-ching. But you know, do it now or do it later, but there's stuff to do. And going to a qualified, competent, experienced professional will save you a lot of time and hassle in the long run. That's my only shameless plug I'll give for our profession. Well, I think that there's, I, I'll do a shameless plug too, that I, I believe that life insurance has a very important part of this at times for people where, you know, it can provide uh, liquidity. There, there's different types of of ways to mitigate risk. There's lots of different ways to mitigate risk. I'm, um, I grew up in the insurance world and, uh, my career evolved into wealth management at a broad level and then into the very high level. But it always is intriguing to me when I work with families and family businesses, just like our, my own family. And we've had a couple different family businesses where, uh, where my grandparents, my grandfather's died. The life insurance is what kept everything going actually, because it was an impairment in the business liquidity-wise at that time. And then the taxes were much higher then. So I know the tax code is constantly ever-changing, and it's going to change again in 2025. But I just also think that there's things that, you know, I think that we can, as, as particularly as aging gay people, LGBTQ people, the new life insurance policies allow you to have long-term care riders where you can actually use the death benefits to pay for long-term care. So there's a way for us to take care of ourselves as we get older. So there's the estate planning has some life planning in it that I think can be very helpful for us and to sort of mitigate some of this risk. And I've met quite a few people that said, Oh, I don't need that. Cause when I die, I, you know, nothing's going to happen. I don't, I don't care. But typically there's somebody you do care about. Typically you're going to want to make sure people are taken care of. 
Am I wrong? Am I? Um, I, I mean, I can't even tell you how right you are because I, I actually came into this discipline from being a corporate lawyer and was frankly a little cynical about life insurance because I thought, oh, I don't know if it's really good use of money. I have seen time and again, and it's the, you know, call it the 3% or 5% of cases when there's an unexpected premature death, thinking of a dear friend from law school whose, you know, husband passed away when two of her kids were still in high school and the oldest had just started college. And like, it made a big difference. It made a big difference. So they didn't have to sell the family home and stress out about tuition payments and all the rest of it. I mean, I, I could go through example after example. It, it, it only happens usually when there's a premature and unexpected death, which is why they call it insurance. I mean, if you're, you know, if you live natural life expectancy and do what you're supposed to do, you don't need it, but you don't know where you are on the bell curve. I don't know when we're going to die. So my other, I'm going to final question. I'm going to wrap this up because I always try to ask a question. What is it that you would want to say to people that you don't normally get to say in a client situation when you're doing this work? You know, do it now, do it later. Don't ever do it sooner or later. Someone has to do something and, and pay money with someone like me. So, you know, it's really just a choice about how you want your assets deployed because it's always more expensive on the back end when it's not set up. Well, I would echo that a hundred times. I think that this conversation, I hope people see the resource in it. And of course we can each help if people have questions and need coaching or guidance. Patrice, what do you think? Any thoughts that you have listening to us? Yeah. How can people reach you? So squilachelaw.com is the website. And uh, if you can spell Squilache, you can find me because it's a unique name. So it's S-Q-U-I-L-L-A-C-E. We are admitted to practice in a number of jurisdictions and are part of a national network. So we can help people really anywhere in the country. We often will affiliate with a local lawyer if it's a jurisdiction we're not admitted, but we do that all the time. And Tim? Uh, all of you know, you can reach me at uh, tim.volk at tvolkco.com. And of course, I can connect you to Scott. Uh, my practice is a national practice as well. And we work with families and their advisors. And uh, we try to fill in those gaps where people need help and, and make the connections as needed. I'd like to really thank Scott for being with us for this episode. Your bedside manner is just incredible. It's just wonderful. And I know why your clients love you. I know why they listen. And I know, I know why you're being, your success is, is follows you is just the way you've approached things. And so I really appreciate you sharing your insights today with us. Thanks for having me, Tim. But wait, but wait, there's more. Scott oh. will be back with Tim in the next episode of the Rainbow Bull. Yes. All you listeners have to do is follow this podcast to know when the show is ready for you. And don't forget to share with others, especially those you care about. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to the Rainbow Bull Podcast. Visit our website at www.tvolco.com or give us a call at 312-636-5855. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of T. Volk and Company Consulting. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.